Well, good morning, Hilton Head Island Community Church. I hope you guys are doing well this morning. Thank you so much for those of you who are here today in the house. I'm really glad that you have chosen to join with us. I want to thank those of you who are watching online, whether you're watching right now live or a little bit later. I'm glad that you are with me and with us this morning. And it is us because I have uh, one of our members and a familiar face around here with me this morning, Bob Kretsch. And so why don't you guys, those of you who are here in the house, give it up for Bob this morning. <laughs> Bob is a educator, and uh, Bob and Karen have been members here for four, is that what you told me, four years, and uh, members of our church have lived here for uh, the past four or five years, and uh, they, he is an educator, and he is an author, and uh, Bob, you have written a lot of books on education, educational-focused books and books for students, but you recently released, in fact, it came out this past Tuesday, uh, a book that is near and dear to your heart, and it's the story of your daughter named Faith and the story of your faith journey, really. And uh, there's a book called A Little Faith, and today we're not only celebrating this book, but um, I believe that what Bob has to share with us today really dovetails really well um, to Ecclesiastes, the study that we've been in. And uh, so I want to ask you, if you would, just to get us started here, Bob, just share with us a little bit of the story of A Little Faith and about Faith's journey, if you would, this morning. Sure. Um, and Todd was talking about me being an author, which is true. wrote it down, and I'm telling and sharing it. Uh, so all glory be to God. Oh, that's awesome. The uh, story begins Thursday, November 5th, 1992. Uh, I was a teacher. I had the day off because it was like a teacher convention weekend. Uh, was at home with my wife, Karen. She was 22 weeks pregnant, and we had two-year-old son, Andrew. And it was one of those really nice leisurely mornings and we're just laying on the rug and playing with blocks and enjoying the sunshine. And Karen left the room for a minute and came back in and she said, um, there was just some bleeding. Now she had had three miscarriages before and every time she had used those words, it was a miscarriage. But here we were 22 weeks along so I didn't think it could be a miscarriage, but I said, so why don't you give the doctor a call? She did. And he said, yeah, this is not abnormal. Come on in, we'll take a look anyway. So we went over to the doctor's office that afternoon and she was examined by the nurse. The nurse said, Karen, you, you look great. Your weight is terrific. How are you feeling? Karen said, I feel great. She said, all right, well, let's take a look at things. So she hooked her up to a monitor, and then all of a sudden the nurse just got quiet, and she said, um, it looks like you might be having some contractions. Do you feel contractions? And she said, no. So she said, all right, I'll get the doctor. He came in, and he started to do an exam, and he said, uh, you've begun to dilate, so let's meet in my office. So headed over to his office, and uh, he said, look, it looks like this baby's gonna be born real soon, probably within the week. Um, we'll try to stop it, and we'll try to, you know, 
even things out, but right now I'd say it'll be born soon, and you need to know the chances of the baby being born alive are not very good. Mm. He said, right now I want you to go directly to the hospital, don't go home. So we did, and she got over there, um, and it began interventions. They did some medications, some procedures, which, long story short, bought another two days. And then Sunday, November 8th, which is we are here again, 28 years ago, um, I brought my son in to visit Karen in the hospital, and we walked in the room, and she was in tears, and I asked, what's wrong? She said, my water broke. Mm. So later that day, we were in the delivery room and uh, the baby was born. Mm. And miraculously, the baby was born alive. Mm. And we were thrilled, we couldn't believe it, but it was the smallest living thing I've ever seen. Mm. So tiny. The only thing I could compare it to were <laughs> things like you might see in a specimen jar mm. during biology class, that tiny. Um, so anyway, the nurses surrounded the baby, whisked off to the side, mm. lights and machines everywhere, and a neonatologist came over to us and asked Karen, how are you doing? Mm. And Karen said, I'm doing fine, how's the baby? And she said, well, the baby's very sick. She's very small. Mm. Um, She's not breathing on her own. We're keeping her heart and lungs going by machine. Um, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna give her to you. We're gonna let you hold her, keep her warm as she passes on. And we were shocked. Um, my reaction was, you're kidding. And she said, no. She said, babies like this don't make it. But we, we said, you're not even gonna try. So she said, all right, I'll bring her to the NICU at your direction. So we said, yes, let's do it. So they took her out. Um, we eventually got to see her later that night. I was checking in with this neonatologist and I said, how's she doing? She said, well, you know, her levels are all over the place. She's still not breathing. She's getting 100% oxygen. Uh, we're keeping her heart going, um, but she's hanging in there. Mm. And the, so the neonatologist, I originally wanted to throttle her, but she said at that point, we just have to keep praying. Mm. And wow. then I loved her. And she, she worked really hard to keep faith going. If you know, if you know Bob at all, you'll know that he doesn't throttle anyone. Like this is one of the kindest, gentlest men that I know. Um, and so to have that type of emotion shows you where he was at that point. Um, what were you, I mean, here you are a successful educator, author, um, really like in control of your life. What was going on in, in, in your heart, deep down in your mind and in your soul during these first hours and days? Yeah, so, you know, from the get-go, I had just been praying, you know, please help her, please save her. And the other thing I should mention is that night, I found out what her weight was. It was 450 grams, which is four grams under a pound. 
My goodness. So less than a pound. Wow. So micro premium. Mm. But I felt just helpless. You know, I'd always been the kind of guy like whatever I thought I wanted to make happen, I could make happen. Mm. You know, if something was wrong, I could fix it. If somebody was sick, we'd find the right doctor, mm. whatever. But here we were in the right hospital in an NICU with these expert doctors and they're all telling us, you know, she's not going to make it. Mm. Prepare yourself. So I, we were discharged from the hospital after two days, went home, and I figured, let me call, let me just check in, see how things are going. So I called over to the NICU and talked to the doctor. I said, how's Faith? And she said, well, she's not having a very good morning. Mm. And I said, what does that mean? She said, well, her potassium is really high, and we've been unable to bring it down. And I said, so to me, I'm thinking, what's a little potassium? She's saying, if we can't do this, we'll lose her. Her heart will stop. So um, I was down on my knees, went up to the bedroom. I'm praying and just asking God, please save her. Please help her. Um, and I just was not feeling peace. I was not feeling like I was connecting. But I kept trying. And then eventually I stood up. I remember looking out the back door through the back window and all of a sudden um, two fragments of verses mm -hmm. dropped into my head. Mm -hmm. Now, I grew up Catholic in the 60s. You did, we did not study the Bible. We didn't have Bible study. They read verses to you at church and that was that. Mm -hmm. But these somehow stuck. And the first one was have faith like a mustard seed. And the second one right on its tail was keep knocking, keep asking, you will be answered. And I, there wasn't somebody talking to me. I wasn't searching for verses in my head, just happened. So right away, I wanted to see where these verses were. I did have one Bible in the house, never really read it. So I'm looking through the Bible for these two verses and I didn't know where to look. So I ended up calling a friend of mine who was at Princeton Theological Seminary. I figured he would know, <laughs> and he did. Uh, he told me the two verses, and I began to pray around those verses. And I just knelt down, and I said, you know, I'm taking these as direction and promises from you. Please help me. And I finally felt some peace when I did that. I felt some kind of confidence that God was with me. Uh, how did you not become bitter in the midst of this? Because there, there you are, her life is, she's clinging to life. Uh, you get these, it's just up and down. You know, how, what did God do in your life to, because we, we know the rest of the story for you is, is you're here. You lead a group at our church. You've had a huge influence in my life uh, and then in the life of the people at Hilton and Allen Community Church. How did you not become bitter? Um, and angry and even fatalistic about life. Um, you know, we, the, we see how tragedy draws us either further away from God or, or pulls us to him. How did you, how did that not happen going away from God? Yeah, I, I, I had nowhere else to go. Mm. I, I had used up all mm. my resources mm -hmm. and God was the only place I thought where this could, where she could be saved. Mm. And in fact, a night later, um, 
I was in bed, I was asleep, and I had a dream. And I'm not a big dreamer. I don't have these premonition-type dreams. You know, people chase me in my dreams. That's the kind of dream <laughs> I have. But in the dream, I was in the NICU, and I was standing right next to Faith's warmer, because she was in a warmer tray under a light. That's where she was. And in the dream, we're all alone in there, except all of a sudden there's a nurse, like an old-fashioned nurse with a big white hat, and there's like a feeling of warmth around her, almost like a light. And she looked at me, and she said, Faith's going to be all right. And I remember thinking, thank you. And I had that feeling of warmth when I woke up the next morning in bed. It was like, oh, there was even more peace mm. from God. Wow. And I, never, I didn't tell anybody about this dream because I didn't want people thinking, oh, I had a dream. Everything's going to be fine. I didn't even tell Karen for days. <laughs> but it, I felt like here's another piece of reassurance mm. from God. Amazing, amazing. And, of course, the rest of the story on your faith journey is God used this in significant ways for you. But the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, uh, for faith is that she, I don't know if you caught this uh, when we were talking, but today is Faith's birthday. Right. And she's doing well. She lives out in Colorado yep. today. She's and 28. Now, I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally stealing the story. Like, you know, uh, this is totally blowing it, right? The whole story. But she is 28 today and lives out in Colorado um, and doing amazing, right? Yep. Yeah, she, you know, part of this process, too, is they were telling us, okay, if she survives, she could be retarded. She could have mm. serious problems, cerebral palsy, mm. um, you know, cognitive issues, all kinds of terrible things could happen. Mm. Turns out, you know, she's a three-sport athlete. You know, she's a search engine optimizer for a website development company. So we couldn't be more thankful for the way things turned out and to live through an amazing miracle mm. um, I felt like obligated to share it in some manner so I worked on this book for like 26 years <laughs> but it's finally done <laughs> well and there's a story behind that and and so um, just briefly tell us a little bit about that because you did work on it for 26 years but then something over the last year really changed things and I, I actually remember Bob and I happened to be in New York City about a year ago and we sat down and talked about this tell, tell us a little bit about that so it's been it was a struggle to write this book to try to mm. get it right and honor God yeah. the way it should be mm. um, so last year we did a book study here at church with Mark Batterson's yep. draw the circle yeah circle and I started reading it and he had a chapter all about his struggle in writing his book. And he talked about how he circled the book in prayer mm. and how he did a fast. He fasted from social media. And I realized I have never prayed for this book, ever. <laughs> and I thought, wow. why not? Wow. So every time I sat down to write, I would pray beforehand. Mm. And all of a sudden, it came. That's awesome. And I was able to do it and finally finish it. It's incredible. And tell us where we can get this book, because it has been released. It was released this past Tuesday. Tell us how we can get this book, how much it is, and that sort of thing. So uh, today, as you leave, there's free copies for you. Please take one. They're absolutely <laughs> free. Oh, sure. Thank you, Bob. And That's awesome. uh, if you like it, if you feel like it might encourage somebody, you know, pass it on. Or 
If you want to buy them a copy, you can buy it at Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com, pretty much any bookstore online where they can order it in. It's completely, you know, everywhere. Um, the other piece that you should know is that um, I'm not accepting any profits from the book. I started an LLC so that all proceeds are donated to charities. Um, if you go to the website, which we'll see in the book, which is called beliefbooks.com, You'll see a list of the charities, yep. and you'll see uh, connections to them and explanations of what they are, because I figured, you know, this is God's story. I better not take any money for it. Yeah. So, you know, that's where the proceeds go. And a few of those, uh, a few of those charities, uh, you who are a part of Hilton and Allen Community Church, you'll recognize them because a few of them are our partners. And so, um, Bob, thank you so much. And let me let me just also say this: um, it was November the eighth, nineteen ninety-two, and so uh, today is Faith's birthday. And I'm sure that she'll be watching this at some point in time. Yeah. So. Faith, happy birthday. Happy birthday, so much. Faith. Happy birthday. Thank you, Bob, so much for sharing your story. Thank you, Karen and Andrew and Faith. Thanks so much, my man. Appreciate it very much. Part of Bob's story with a little faith is his realization that life is fleeting, that the search for significance is found maybe not in the things that the world tells us it's found in. And I believe it's exactly what the teacher in Ecclesiastes tells us. I believe it's what God through uh, King Solomon wants to say to us is that life is short, it's fleeting. And at the end of his life, or towards the end of his life, King Solomon writing this, this book that seems to be um, so difficult for us to understand sometimes, but so valuable in wisdom, is written to us to help us find significance. Not from anything under the sun, as the teacher says, but life with God. Because life with God is significant. Life without God is meaningless. It's hopeless. It's like a vapor or like a mist. And Bob, your story, I think, highlights some of the things that the author, the teacher is talking about here in Ecclesiastes. And today, whether you're at home or whether you're joining us here in the house, uh, I'm going to ask you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and 6. And in a short period of time here that we have left this morning, um, we're going to be talking about four warnings. Actually, we're going to discuss three of them in detail. And or the fourth one we're going to 
let you do some study by yourself on that at home to see some of these warnings that the teacher, that King Solomon wants us to hear about life that drives at our purpose, that drives at our significance, it drives at our striving and longing for a place where we can understand and belong uh, why we are here and have that question why we're here answered. I don't know about you, the first time I can remember a warning and remember, uh, you know, hearing a warning was my dad as a kid. Uh, when I learned how to ride a bike, it was my favorite thing to do. We lived in Florida. Everything was nice and flat, similar to the way it is here in South Carolina at the time. We lived in Florida, and I loved riding my bike. And, and this was uh, when the, the training wheels kind of came off, and my dad gave me a warning, just be careful, be careful. He said, don't cross the street without looking. When you cross the street, make sure that your, your eyes are focused on the other side. And one of the warnings he gave me was, don't turn your wheels. I watch you, you turn those handlebars back and forth the faster you go, and you're going to get hurt if you do that. And I, I, I heeded the first two warnings. I didn't heed the last one and ended up in the hospital one day um, and, uh, and when I flipped upside down on the bike because I wasn't listening to my dad's warning. And I think sometimes in life when we hear someone give a warning, we automatically think that it's negative or they're being too cautious or they're not being bold enough or they really like it's to comfort them. But the warnings that we have here, these four warnings that we have, were inspired by God's Holy Spirit given to King Solomon who gave it to us through this character that he describes the teacher. And today, very quickly, we're going to dive right in and take a look in depth at three of these warnings. The first warning that he has in us, for us trying to find significance and purpose is don't bargain with God. Don't bargain with God. Be careful in bargaining with God. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 1 and 2, I'm reading from the ESV at first this morning. It says this, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And I'm going to come back to that phrase, sacrifice of fools, here in a moment. He says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil, the sacrifice of fools. Do not be rash with your mouth. Do not let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And some of you are like, I've got a few people in my life that need to hear that phrase right there, let your words be few. He goes on to talk about not taking a vow if you intend to break it. And the sacrifice of fools here that the teacher tells us about is the, this idea that it is folly for us to bargain with God. To make a deal with God to somehow think that we are going to do something for him so that he in return will do something for us. I want to read it from the message, which is a paraphrase this morning. I think it may give us a little bit of insight, a little bit clearer insight, maybe in a more of a modern language uh, paraphrase. Watch your steps. Watch your step when you enter the ho God's house. Enter to learn. That's far better than mindlessly offering a sacrifice, do more har doing more harm than good. 
Don't shoot off your mouth or speak before you think. Don't be too quick to tell God what you think he wants to hear. God's in charge. I want to say that again. God's in charge, not you. The less you speak, the better. The less you speak, the better. Now, this whole idea of the sacrifice of fools is buying God off or making God do something for uh, you by your false good deeds. And the way this is played out kind of in our modern day is bargaining with God is this idea of making a checklist or having a checklist of religious deeds that you believe is going to like pay off for you in the end. It's the idea of thinking that if you read enough verses that um, God is going to somehow give you some type of blessing. It's the idea that if you come to church enough, or in our day and age, watch online enough, that somehow he's going to be pleased with that, and he's going to do something good for in exchange for you doing that religious deed. Now, are those religious deeds bad? Not at all. In fact, they're very good. But when we think that we can bargain with God by having a checklist of religious deeds that will somehow benefit us, we're mistaken. That's the sacrifice of fools. A double life, pretending to be one thing in private or pretending to be one thing in public when you're another thing in private. Thinking that God is going to honor you for a false life. A bargain with God is making an if-then statement to God. I remember when I was a kid, I've talked about before that my focus was golf growing up, and um, I was getting to be pretty good in middle school, and I really thought that I was going to be a professional golfer. And I remember like going out and playing, and sometimes you have to play on Sundays. And I remember, um, really, it seemed like every Sunday I had a really bad score. And so I remember saying to God, God, I will not play golf on Sunday if you give me a better score. That may seem immature and silly but that's how we bargain with god we make these if then statements and so the way that we check ourselves is by checking to see if what we're doing if we're doing it for the purpose of giving god glory or that we love him or are we doing it because we think that we are going to receive something in exchange Another way that we can test ourselves to think if we are buying into this idea of the sacrifice of fools and by doing so bargaining with God is if we think that bad comes our way because of the bad deeds that we do and that good comes our way because of the good things that we do. That's a form of sacrifice of fools. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes says, be very careful in your life to not bargain with God, what should we do instead? I think John 14, 15 tells us when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, that's the motive that we ought to have to do good. That's the motive that ought to be the thing that drives us to do those deeds for God, to walk into service with Him, to walk in obedience with Him, to walk into sacrifice with Him. It should be born from a love of God, not something that we think we're going to get from God. And so in terms of bargaining with God, rather than bargaining with Him, we should do good for Him because we love Him. There's a second warning. I think it kind of applies to our world right now and our world today over a long period of time, maybe today more than any other time, and that is, is don't be surprised by the abuse of power. Don't be surprised 
by the abuse of power. Ecclesiastes 5, 8, and 9 says this in the ESV. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed. And I want to come back to that word. He says, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher one. And there are yet higher ones over them. And then he says in verse 9, that this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivate fields. The message, I love the message, it says this, don't be too upset when you see the poor kicked around and justice and right violated all over the place. Exploitation filters down from one petty official to another. There's no end to it and nothing can be done about it. See, we can be amazed, I think, in two ways, by the powerful person, the powerful party, or the powerful people. And that is, is we're surprised by the power. And in some cases, we're infatuated with the power. Now, I want you to think about this in the context of what's going on in our world and in our country. And I understand there are some of you that are, are, are happy. There are some of you that are desperately sad about what's going on in our world politically. But here's the thing, church. The world needs to see us as the church have our hope and our faith in no one other than Jesus Christ and him alone. He is the one where our hope lies. Cynthia sang a tag on the end of that song there, kings and kingdoms will pass away. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing more powerful than the name of Jesus. And our hope lies in him. We shouldn't be amazed uh, or impressed or enamored with powerful people. And, and we shouldn't be surprised when the powerful abuse the power. Listen, I want you to hear this. That's what they do. They abuse their power. And it plays itself out not just in politics. And it's not play it, it plays itself out in the justice system and in the business world. And we see it played out in the sports world, by the way, at every level from the little ones all the way up to the professionals. We see it played out, unfortunately, in some of the things that we've seen this past summer in terms of the racial divide that we see, not just here, but around the world. We see it played out, listen, in the families, unfortunately, that the powerful abuse their power. And we sometimes have a tendency to put our hope and our trust in those people that we see that who are powerful, and our trust and our hope should be in Jesus and Him alone. I love Luke 9, verse 43. Uh, the disciples are about ready to have Jesus. He, Jesus is about ready to tell them that He's going to be leaving them, and He's going to be dying, and that He's going to rise again from the dead, and um, He's about ready to give them this news. And look at what it says was going on in Luke 9, 40, verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. While they were marveling at everything Jesus was doing, then He uh, begins to tell His disciples what was about ready to happen. You see, he gave them the greatest news of hope for the future. 
And what were they doing before that? They were focused on his amazing works. They were focused on his power, not the world's power. They were focused on the power of the one that God sent to die for the sins of the world, not the Roman government. And so what should we do instead? Well, rather than being surprised by the abuse of power in the world, be amazed and enamored with the power of God. Be amazed at the power of God. Look at his deeds. Warning number three. This one's going to hit home. It's going to be tough. Don't be obsessed with money. Don't be mad at me. The teacher said it. Solomon said it, not me, okay? But it's true. We shouldn't be obsessed with money. If we're looking for significance in money, we're mistaken. Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 12, he who loves money will not be, what's that next word? He who loves money will not be what? Satisfied. He won't be satisfied with it. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And so the teacher here is saying that those of us who love money will not be satisfied with money. We may strive to find our significance and our satisfaction in money and what it brings us, but it is an end game. It's empty. It's hollow. And in fact, Solomon, the teacher here, says, in fact, that the more money you have, the more problems you have, the more taxes you have to pay, the more there is for someone to steal, the more there is for uh, thieves to come in and steal, there's more responsibility, there's more to lose, there's more dependency upon money, there's more desire for money. And listen, when we love money, it grows, that love of money grows in our heart. We become accustomed to it. We become comfortable with it. We may love money, but money never loves us back, church. It never, ever, ever loves us back. We may be loyal to money, but it never is loyal to us. And we may become dependent on money and what it brings us, but money is never dependent on us. Ben Franklin said this, money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of its filling a vacuum, it makes one. If it satisfies one want, it doubles and trebles or triples the want another way. And so money is an end game. It's an end game, the finding money and finding our satisfaction in money. And Jesus told us that money wasn't evil, but the love of money is evil. So what should we do instead? I think Hebrews 13 gives us a little insight. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be, what's that next word? Content, content, content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. So rather than being obsessed with money, church, we need to be satisfied with Jesus. 
He will never leave you or forsake you. At some point in time, the money will run out. At some point in time, you'll lose it all. At some point in time, you'll get to the end and you'll be gone if it's not gone yet. But Jesus never leaves you or forsakes you. And so that's where our hope should be. Rather than bargaining with God, we should do good because we love God. Rather than being surprised by the abuse of power, be amazed by the powerful God. And rather than being obsessed with money, be satisfied with God. And the fourth warning that he gives is don't find your heaven through earthly pursuits. And I'm going to encourage you to study that one on your own or with a group at home. The Roots Guide each week is available by Wednesday, and the Roots Guide this week will be focused on chapter 6, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, where you'll dive into uh, finding out what it means, that last warning, not finding your heaven through earthly pursuits. Man, I want to encourage you today. I want to encourage you, regardless of what's going on in your personal world, regardless of what's going on in, in our, our state and national world, regardless of what's going on around the world, church, it's time for us to find our meaning and our significance in God and His Word and His Son, because that's what Bob found out when the crisis came for him. That's what he discovered when the crisis came. That life is here one moment and gone the next. So let's live, it to, live life to its fullest, but let's live life to its fullest with God, not focusing on those things that are under the sun. Let's live it with purpose and significance and let the world know about the joy that comes with knowing Jesus by the way we live our lives. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, I thank you so much for these warnings. And admittedly, God, just at the outset, just kind of on the surface, um, we don't like warnings. I don't like warnings. I don't like someone speaking up about a warning because it seems like it's limiting. It seems like it's negative. It seems like it might be pessimistic. But Father God, you inspired King Solomon to write through the words of the teacher the reflections of his life, his experiences. And God, someone who experienced so much over such a long period of time is going to have warnings that we need to hear. And Father, I pray in our pursuit of significance, in our pursuit of finding meaning and purpose in this life, help us, God, to not fall into the trap of bargaining with you. Help us to do good because we love you. Help us to realize that religious deeds are, it's just that. That's all it is, it's just deeds. But us following in obedience because of our love for you is pure and significant. It's not hollow and meaningless. Help us, Father, to not be surprised when we see the powerful abuse their power. God, help us to have our hope in you, the one who is powerful enough to defeat death itself. God, I pray that we would put our hope and our focus and our significance and our meaning and our purpose in you. And finally, God, I pray that you would help us to be careful to not be obsessed with money. Help us instead 
to be focused not only on your power and what you've done, but help us to be focused on living our lives dependent on you, the creator of all things, the provider of everything, the one who protects us through all of the storms. God, I thank you. I thank you for that. And may we live our lives like Bob found out years ago, living them for you, seeking you out, loving you, having our mind and our heart and our hope focused on you. God, I thank you for the teacher from Ecclesiastes. And I pray that you would bless our time in it. May your Holy Spirit teach us what we need personally to know from Ecclesiastes and where we need to grow from in Ecclesiastes. We give it to you and we thank you so much for Bob's story and the story of faith. We thank you for his book and I pray that you would bless it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen.